0: We know you have lots of questions.
1: If you think that you've developed symptoms.
0: Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell.
1: Welcome to the podcast COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Perotti, who serves as Associate Executive Director for the Permanente Medical Group with responsibility for hospital operations, inpatient quality, patient safety, care of complex and special needs populations, skilled nursing facilities, home health, hospice, and advanced analytics. He is also an Executive Vice President for the Permanente Federation, with duties that include external affairs, communications, and brand. He also serves as a liaison for Kaiser Permanente's engagement in local and international healthcare delivery initiatives. He has held several leadership roles at Kaiser Permanente, including the Chief of Infectious Disease and HIV Care Director for the Napa Solano Service Area, the Chair of Infectious Disease for the Permanente Medical Group, Chair of the Northern California Regional Infection Control Committee. Chair of the Health Connect Governance Committee and the Regional Director of Hospital Operations, Dr. Parodi currently practices as an infectious disease physician in the Napa-Solano service area. Dr. Parodi received his medical degree from Georgetown University, completed his internal medicine residency at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and infectious disease fellowship at the UCLA Affiliated Program in Infectious Disease. He is a fellow in the Infectious Disease Society of America and serves as a delegate to the California Medical Association Very Large Group Forum. He has served on Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America committees related to public policy, government affairs, and antimicrobial stewardship. He actively collaborates with the California Department of Public Health and Centers for Disease Control on public health matters. He joined the Permanente Medical Group straight out of training because of Kaiser Permanente's and Permanente Medicine's clear mission to serve individual patients' needs and bring medical excellence at an ever greater scale through a concerted effort to achieve population management. Steve, thank you for joining me on the podcast.
2: It's really great to be with you, Ted.
1: Great, Steve. Um, would you mind just by starting and telling us a bit more about your background, about your journey to medicine, and how you selected your specialty of infectious diseases?
2: Yeah, sure. You know, Ted, I I think I've uh, wanted to be a doctor for a long time. You know, it was uh, back in high school when I first got exposed to working in an emergency department, and just being able to help people um, in need. And it really was a goal of mine to sort of move in that direction. And then I happened upon a book in my senior year in med school called Crisis of the Hot Zone. Um, It was about the Ebola outbreaks and uh, it just sort of... uh, Sorry for the pun here, but I caught the bug and couldn't resist wanting to you know, do more when it came to epidemiology and understanding, actually, the whole interface between public health and, and community health, along with provision of medical care. And so that's really what drove me to get into infectious disease.
1: Great. And so I'd like to tap into your expertise as an infectious disease specialist and ask you to explain for our audience the current state of antibody testing for COVID-19, because that's a really hot topic on social media and out in in the traditional media as well.
2: Yeah, no doubt. And, um, you know, in terms of the antibody tests, they are coming online, which is good news. Uh, The difficult news is how do we actually use them? Um, And right now, I would say that uh, the Population based level. So, trying to understand how much of a population has been infected with COVID 19, that's really where the role of these tests are going to play. And that will help us with trying to understand you know, what's the level of potential protection that might exist within a given community. Can we lift up the non pharmaceutical interventions and where? Um, where they're less useful right now, based on the recent studies out of both Santa Clara County. Um, as well as New York, is that the prevalence, meaning the number of people have been infected in totality, is relatively low. So that means that the sensitivity and specificity for a given patient that you're seeing in your clinic is pretty limited. Um, So really, for testing on an individual patient basis, it's pretty much limited to if you've had a negative PCR test, and you're thinking, gee, I really think this person had COVID, I'm going to go ahead and do an antibody test, um, that would be fine. But otherwise, for just general diagnostic purposes, it's not that helpful yet.
1: As you see it, Steve, what steps need to be taken to safely reopen businesses, the economy, and society?
2: Yeah, so I, I think that the first thing that you want to know is uh whether you actually have reducing amounts of disease in the community. And so, the first thing that you have to see is less hospitalizations, less visits to the emergency departments. And fortunately, in California, we are starting to see that trend. Um, in Kaiser Permanente, Northern California, um, we have seen a significant reduction in number of cases. And why do you want to see that? Because when you start reopening We know that we're going to inevitably probably see more cases. And what we want to be able to do is find the cases quickly. So that means you have to have enough testing. And then you have to have enough people to be able to do contact tracing around those people that we know are infected. On average, somewhere between 10 to 15 individuals are contacts to a person who is infected. So that means that we have to have both the contact tracing available and the testing capability, because you're not talking about just that one person. You're talking about 10x for that one person. The the second thing that you really need um, is the ability to continue some of the measures around social distancing. So, you know, a lot of us now, when we get into a line, you see little X's on the floor that keeps us, uh, you know, six feet apart. Um, We're going to need to do that for most of the industries. And in fact, for ourselves, in terms of the healthcare industry, uh, we're going to avoid queuing of people, meaning we don't want people standing in lines for their medication. So maybe we need to double down on what the mail order um, pharmacy looks like for Kaiser Permanente. Um, For lab testing, rather than having people wait in a long line in our labs, um, actually doubling down on the drive-through testing. So we did that in terms of just the nasopharyngeal swabs, maybe we need to do that for other things. Or think about our injection clinics and immunization, being able to have social distancing there. So it's gonna be the same for other industries. We need to have those capabilities in place to create what we think is gonna be a new normal in the capacity of knowing that we're not gonna have a vaccine available in the next 12 to 18 months.
1: Right, and Steve, you brought up this idea of contact tracing. Do you mind just describing for our audience just a little bit about what you mean by that process?
2: Sure. So it's similar to actually the tried and true method that we have for other contagious diseases. So for example, if I'm in my clinic and I diagnose someone with tuberculosis, I'm, of course, treating that individual with TB. And then I'm calling up the public health department and reporting it. Um, And then the public health department does contact tracing, meaning they interview the patient and then find out who are they in close contact with and then do additional testing. Now in the case of COVID-19, we at KP are gonna have actually an important role to play here because there are clearly a lot more COVID-19 cases around than other classic infectious diseases where we do contact tracing. So it's part of the reason why the governor is actually um, investing in a larger contact tracing team. There's actual training um, for these individuals at the state level. Um, And then for us, as Kaiser Permanente and Permanente physicians, we're going to have a role to play in not just diagnosing the individuals, but also figuring out in the household, particularly where a lot of these individuals have Kaiser Permanente members living with them, also performing the testing um, and asking the contact tracing question.
1: That's that's a great description. Thank you for giving us some context there, Steve. Can you talk with us about the possibility of a second or even multiple peaks of this pandemic as we reopen society and, and also head into the next flu season?
2: Sure. You know, if you look at the prior pandemics in the past century, um, we know that each of these pandemics have had a second and often a third wave of infection. Um, And there are lots of different reasons for that, but at a very basic level, um, essentially the population that's being infected by the novel virus has no pre-existing what we call herd immunity. Um, And so, um, when the first wave occurs, we know that not everyone gets infected. And just for example, in Santa Clara County, where we had uh, probably the largest outbreak of COVID to date, um, we estimate that only about 4% of the population actually got infected. So it's not sort of out of turn to think that we would see another wave of infection. And we, of course, know that the virus can mutate as well over time. So we could see other waves because of that. So the reason for remaining prepared for a surge and continuing some of the social distancing measures is because we do, in fact, expect that there will be another wave. A lot of us are concerned about the winter season um, because that is when influenza starts circulating again. Um, And if we see COVID also resurge at the same time, that would be a significant strain on the healthcare system. Um, So it's going to be important that we continue many of these measures that we've uh, taken to put in place um, and having essentially a surveillance system that's even more sophisticated than we had in the past to be able to find where the cases might be surging in a given locale.
1: That's great, Steve. Um, And you mentioned looking at previous pandemics, and and we know that there were multiple peaks during the 1918 flu pandemic. And, you know, as it's important to learn from history and study history to see what we can learn from it to not repeat previous mistakes. So besides what you mentioned about expecting additional peaks, what else can we learn from the 1918 flu pandemic? And how can we apply that to the COVID pandemic we're seeing today?
2: That's a great question. So with the 1918 pandemic, that second wave was actually much larger than the first. Um, So the first lesson learned there is that we, even though we flattened the curve and we actually haven't seen nearly the number of cases that we might have otherwise modeled for and predicted um, during this time period, we have to remain vigilant. So all those hospital beds that we stood up the additional capacity within our clinics um, when it comes to virtual care still is in play. Um, We still have to keep all of that available. Um, So in fact, one of the things that we've been preparing for is to be able to continue um, circulating um, not only the beds, the the, uh, capability of the equipment being in place, but also the flexibility of moving staff from place to place depending on where we see surges. The, the second thing that I think lessons learned from that pandemic um, was that actually the second wave was much more severe in terms of the amount of disease that it caused and, and death and mortality. Um, and so I, I think from our standpoint as healthcare providers, we need to be messaging to our patients um, and to public officials, to the community um, that We have to have that level of concern that just because we didn't see a big surge now that we could be at risk later. And we know from the 1918 pandemic that the cities that took stricter non-pharmaceutical interventions had better outcomes than the ones that did not. Right.
1: Um, So, Steve, what population health monitoring tools, novel technology and changes in care delivery... Can we use to continue disease suppression
2: you know we actually have some experience here for the last six to seven years we of course track the regular flu epidemic every year and so one of the questions we asked as an organization back then was are there leading indicators besides just waiting for hospitalizations to happen or even emergency department visits and so, because we're an integrated system, we have an appointment advice call center. And it turns out that people that call in with cold, cough, and flu symptoms that trigger those scripts actually predate uh, by about two to three weeks hospitalizations and emergency department visits. Um, so, we've used that modeling to be able to give us a sense of when do we need to start staffing. When do we turn on the telephone treatment protocols for Tamiflu, for example? Um, So we turned that on actually for COVID because COVID early on had its own separate scripting. And it turns out that that was actually pretty predictive of showing these uh, activity in the community, even without the testing capabilities. So we plan on using that. Um, We also are starting to look at secure messaging Uh, and using natural language processing to see uh, whether somebody who's typing in certain symptoms would trigger um, the uh, opportunity for us to understand it looks like something's popping up in the It looks like the early information would suggest secure messaging regarding those symptoms actually starts to go up even before they, they start calling. Um, we're also, because of the ramped up testing capability, and let me just call out, this is something that the Permanente Medical Group and KP has really led on here, is we have now opened up a new 7,000 square foot lab in Berkeley. Science
1: science, science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual, all to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts, the Mad Scientist Podcast.
2: Um, To be able to do much more uh, PCR testing, and so percent positive numbers of tests, again, we've used for Flu in the past, we're going to use for COVID. Um, let me tell you about one other novel thing that we're sort of trying, starting to look at here, which is uh, patient surveys regarding their symptoms. Um, we know that in the past with flu, and uh, recently um, SurveyMonkey did a study um, looking at just sampling people and saying, "Do you have symptoms?" with COVID, um, and that also seems to predate um, contact with the healthcare system. So we've got individuals in the division of research that are parsing out all these different variables to see can we put together a model that's more sophisticated than the one we use for surge planning
1: that's really interesting so a lot in the world of predictive analytics and modeling to try to see what's going on a couple weeks out and maybe even longer than that
2: yeah i think you know it, this is going to be so important for you know not just us but for the public health system in general. Um, And one thing I I would just mention to everyone is that um, KP has been very much involved, both at the state level and the federal levels, to help inform the the models. So um, we've we've had contact with the White House Task Force and Dr. Birx's team, as well as at the uh, state level working with uh, Governor Newsom's team to help um, integrate our perspectives so that they can build uh, more effective models for the country and state.
1: Right. Yeah, it, it needs to be more of a nationwide model and, and widespread as opposed to pockets of it being effective. Steve, I was doing some research in preparation for this interview and you were recently part of an American Medical Association discussion on COVID. And you talked about an informational campaign and what must be emphasized as the country begins to open. So what must be included in an effective informational campaign? How do we get this information out to the public? And how do we overcome misinformation that's being spread online and sometimes in the media, which is seems to be becoming more widespread by the day?
2: You know, your, your first or actually your last point is actually one of the most important, which is that we as physicians uh, remain a trusted voice uh, and we have to actually get out there and, and potentially in different ways than we've traditionally done in the past. There's, of course, our contact with uh, people in the exam room um, or by video um, or by audio telephonic uh, consultation or via our, our secure messaging. And certainly we can spread that word in terms of uh, people continuing the social distance, uh, people wearing the masks uh, in public to cover their costs, um, if they're sick, staying at home, um, and definitely contacting us so they can get tested um, and that we can, uh, you know, again, facilitate the contact tracing and informing the public about what that means. Um. So they understand and buy into this. Um, I think that the the second thing, though, is moving beyond just the exam room, if you will. And I'm using that in the larger collective term of every how we're contacting our patients um, is getting out on social media and being able to share that. So that like the the reference that you're talking about with AMA, I mean, we were doing a Twitter chat. Um, and, and the whole point there is that a lot of people are reached that way nowadays um, and getting our messaging out. Um, and we've got physicians within the Permanente Medical Group that are facile with um, using social media to get these messages out. I think that's actually part and parcel to, to our jobs now.
1: Right. And we are seeing a whole lot more of that around policy and advocacy and, and physicians getting the word out through kind of non-traditional venues for us, like social media and podcasts like this, where we're trying to provide credible information for the public. Um, So Steve, in this American Medical Association discussion, um, you mentioned testing for COVID before surgery as, as one way of ensuring safety as hospitals begin to reopen for routine care. Maybe tell us a little bit about that, and, and what else can be done to ensure the safety of patients and healthcare workers as we start to reopen everything?
2: That's a great question. So as we uh, begin to uh, reopen, and, and let me just give you a sense of surgery. This is something that's worth uh, calling out. So despite us ramping down the elective surgeries, we've continued to do 40 to 50% of scheduled surgeries. Um, And that has been really a tribute to our surgeons, anesthesiologists, and their entire teams uh, committed to providing continued cancer care, cardiac care. Um, And really now the question is, okay, so how can we do more? Um, How can we do that so that the healthcare workforce is protected? Um, And that is going to be doing preoperative testing so we can determine you know, who's at risk um, for either developing COVID or actually have COVID um, and potentially cancel a surgery. Um, and that of course is protective of everyone involved, but it also reduces the strain on personal protective equipment. And one, one sort of message I wanna uh, get out there is that we are still facing supply chain shor- shortages when it comes to PPE. So as we reopen, we have to be cognizant of doing the testing so that we can, again, preserve safety, but also preserve PPE. Um, Where do we go next with testing? Uh, We are actively looking at protocols for being able to test people that are getting admitted to the hospital. Uh, And why is that important? Because again, we can triage uh, who needs the isolation rooms, who doesn't need the isolation rooms. We are also looking at that at the emergency department level. Um, are there gonna be other potential areas where we might screen? Um, you know, and that, that's an area of, I can tell you, active discussion. Um, so when it comes to employers in workforce planning or opening up of certain industries, there is discussion around testing uh, there. Um, a lot of that's being done in conjunction with the state health department so that we're in sync with them.
1: Great, great. We really appreciate that, that insight into what's being done. How do you see healthcare systems managing the likely surge of routine care and more urgent care that patients may not have been pursuing during this pandemic out of fear of coming into medical offices and hospitals?
2: You know, you you cite a really important question here. Um, you know, if, with this mitigation effort, what we've seen is a reduction in the number of people that are coming in with myocardial infarctions, the number of people that are coming in with strokes or TIAs. And there's a really open question out there. You know, are people deferring care? Or are they having adverse events that we don't know about? Um, and so one of the key messages, and, and I would want to everyone to be conveying this uh, to their patients, is that if you need to seek care, you know, it is safe to come in and get that care in person, even as we start to lift some of the pharmaceutical interventions. The uh, second thing that I think is really important here is that uh, there is a way to um, ramp up services and yet preserve some of the gains that we've uh, you know, learned here. Um, so we have learned that some of the care can be provided safely in a virtual manner. And we don't want to lose that. Um, and I know that every specialty within the Permanente Medical Group is actually going through an assessment to understand what can be done via video first, as opposed to be doing, be doing it in person. And then what categories of disease processes just need to be seen. And how can we do that in a staged fashion, Uh, schedule it so that there's appropriate time in between patients so they're not queuing in a waiting room and potentially exposing each other. So I know that the operational leaders within the permanent medical group actively looking at all those pieces um, so that we do this um, effectively. The other thing I'll just mention is that when you talk about preventative care, and I'll focus on immunizations for a second. We know there are a number of children that have had deferred immunizations over the last month and a half, um, and we need to get them in. And we're actively looking at, and actually a number, I wanna say it's about seven or eight uh, facilities that have already done this, where they're doing drive-through immunizations. And what's really interesting about that Beyond the convenience factor and of course the safety factor, is that you're removing that queuing that was occurring in our injection clinic. Uh, And so I think we're going to need to look at those types of innovations and and make them, if not permanent, semi permanent while we're working through the suppression phase without a vaccine in place for COVID 19.
1: Yes, this pandemic really is leading to innovations like you just mentioned and, and shifting more care into the virtual realm and i think opening our eyes into what really can be done by telephone and video and and some of that is going to be here to stay and i'm glad you bring up the point and reemphasize that it is safe to get care if you need it and we don't want people putting off severe symptoms and other guests on the show have also emphasized that fact so i appreciate you saying it probably worth saying if you can it's worth putting a call into your physician or call center first so that we can direct you to the best place to be getting that care and the safest option. But obviously, if it's an emergency, go get the care that you need. Steve, I want to get back into this idea of learning from history. Um, And you led an emergency management team for more than 4 million patients and, and wrote an article in the New York Times about medical evacuations of hospitals during the California wildfires. So can you tell us what did we learn from the wildfires that potentially can be applied to the care of patients during this pandemic?
2: Well, so, you know, it's interesting you ask that question because we've, um, at Kaiser Permanente in Northern California, had quite a bit of experience, whether it's the fires, um, the Ebola crisis back in 2014, or even the 2009 and 10 H1N1 pandemic. And each one of those had its various versions of command centers uh, put in place uh, to have a systematic response. I think um, what's key here um, and why we've uh, really excelled um, in these uh, times, and in particular COVID-19, is because we've been able to come together as an entire system. And what I mean by that, it's the medical group with our hospital and health plan colleagues to put together a a complete cogent um, approach. Uh, And that's been really important and to be able to cascade that quickly. Um, You know, we're a pretty large organization. You're just referencing, you know, 4.4 million members, uh, 9,000 physicians, uh, probably about 80,000 staff. Um, And to say, you know, we don't know anything about this disease. And within two months, we've stood up, you know, more than almost 2,500 hospital beds. Completely transformed the way we do care. Um, Moving to video, um, you know. Last week, uh, we were doing up to ten to fifteen thousand video visits a day. Um, That doesn't just happen uh, by happenstance. I mean, that that took a level of organization with the command center in place, Um, and and we really took the learnings from systematically being able to evacuate a hospital and doing that within you know, eight hours uh, and having that level of precision organization. I think that's what really is where the organization shines. Um, You know, when a crisis hits, everyone comes together and does the right thing.
1: Right. And now there's an opportunity to learn from this pandemic and what we're experiencing now, as we talked about earlier, to get ready in case there is a next peak or peaks and be prepared and, and hopefully manage that even better than what's happened the first time around
2: i think that's right um and and i think that um uh, that's what actually the whole organization's thinking about right is what is next uh that, that's what i like about working here to be honest with you is that that we're never satisfied <laughs> you know it's uh it's one thing to do it well now and uh, everyone's already moving on to, okay, well, what are we going to be facing? Uh, and, and that's really why, you know, KP's a, a pretty successful place is that, you know, we're, we're always thinking around what's around the corner. Great.
1: Um, Steve, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to provide us some of your insights and expertise and, and describe what we've learned so far and, and where we're going from here as, as society begins to reopen and hopefully um, we're able to adequately suppress this disease. So on behalf of the podcast and our audience, we thank you.
2: Ted, thanks so much for the opportunity. Really great chatting.
1: Absolutely. Have a good
2: evening. Okay, Steve. You too.
0: That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Bright again. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID 19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslonga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Arslonga, Vita Brevis.